morning I'm thinking about a very strong conviction that came upon me just now as I was in and out of sleep. True judgment is to look at a situation, a circumstance, a problem between parties. Not with readiness to seize upon distracting details, but to look at the overarching theme and to, and to focus in upon the major issues. major problems of what we think is justice is the immediate seizure upon sensational details. That can incriminate the innocent and clear the guilty. It happens altogether too often. It's one of the problems of organized judicial crime. If the judge or some other judicial system like the DHHS makes a determination, an adjudication based on a prejudicial or biased agenda, it must seize upon anything which can lend credence to their narrative. The deployment of false witnesses, fabrication of, of ev evidence, falsified documents, what you call tainting of witnesses and witness tampering, any number of other shenanigans or strategies that can be used to forward a particular narrative are easily and readily employed by the DHHS, unchallenged by the average citizen. Unfortunately, there has not been a proper review of how the system works. There has not been a proper review within the public eye, within the public scrutiny, to popularize and to clarify the corruption of the DHHS vis-a-vis -vis its approach to child abuse and children in custody and adoption. There have been clearly things written about it. I've seen it online very briefly and scanning some of the things out there and perusing a few things even. But it's an underground kind of marginalized media. It's not in the mainstream media. 
for obvious reasons. The Department of Health and Human Services is one of those major organizations which has been given sweeping powers to determine what is best for citizens. And there's a general fear, if not revulsion, at the prospect of challenging the system or even scrutinizing the system or even discussing the system on the part of the average citizen. When we are talking about citizens of conscience, that is, even amongst them, there is a tendency to be very careful how one approaches the sweeping powers of the DHHS. It's a David and Goliath scenario. It's an awareness that everybody is quaking in their boots as this uncircumcised Philistine, head and shoulders taller than anybody in the Israel army, is calling for somebody to come out and fight him, and the victor would be the represent the victor in battle itself, uh, just on the basis of who wins in a fight. But what I saw, and I want to get back to it very briefly this morning, as I started to doze, I woke up with a very clear impression, thinking I'd better jot this down, and in this case, share it. I was thinking, I was brought back to Tamara Clark, saying that she never drinks, forced to lie by the system, knowing that if she said she drank even once, Deborah Paradis, the permanency worker for DHHS, would be able to corner her and destroy her. And so there was an indication that Tamara Clark was lying by saying that she never drinks when there was an evidence that she had fallen in the snow or was pushed into the snow or slipped and was taken advantage of by the police in respect to treating her as considerably drunk outside of a bar slash restaurant in Camden, Camden, Maine. What the details of that story are, one can only guess, but Tamara Clark told me that they were accusing her in a manner that was wrong at, at a minimum in the fact that they were finding fault with her when she had slipped on the ice. The point of the judge is that should she have been drinking and not telling the truth, even to Jonathan Tucker, not telling the entire truth, even to Jonathan Tucker, the one who was advocating for him, that is myself, the point of the judge had a devastating effect on the guardian ad litem attorney, Lisa Lattes, who proceeded to enter into a, a, an hysterical fit a strange uncontrollable laughter when the judge asked her is it not possible that a mother would lie in order to get her kid, her child back.
Bar Clark says that Lisa Lattes continued in a bizarre, a freakish hysteria for an extended period in reply. I recall finally conceding, yes, yes, it's true. A mother could lie to get her child back. But that begs the important question. When Solomon took up a sword to determine who is the true mother, who was the true mother of the two prostitutes, one of whom had rolled over and killed her own child during the night and therefore accused the other of having killed her child and claiming the living child as hers. So, of course, there's this challenge to Solomon on the part of these two women as to who is the true mother. He says, let me cut the child in half and give each half to each of you. And, of course, the true mother protested and he hands the child over to the true mother. The true mother protested, saying, give the child to the other woman. Don't cut the child. That's the mother. Why? Because the true mother does not, can, cannot imagine cutting her child in half. Whereas the false, whereas the false accuser said, that's, that's okay, cut the child in half, we'll each get half. So how do we cut that Gordian knot today? How do we deal with that kind of false accusation and uh, uh, the, the context of immorality. These are both prostitutes facing Solomon in the Old Testament. Solomon isn't dealing with their immorality now. He's dealing with the morality of whose child it is. Naturally, in, in a godly state, the next question for Solomon would be to engage these ladies to recognize the benefits of moral purity. But they weren't in court regarding their adultery, their fornication, their prostitution. They were in court, in court regarding the question of child custody, stewardship of the child under God. Who's, who's the lawful parent? So when we look at child custody today, and we consider that Tamara Clark might have lied regarding her drinking, saying that she wasn't drinking anymore when in, when in fact there was some argumentation or, or uh, at court and uh, within the social service meeting context as to or, or question or agitation concerning whether she was lying regarding drinking. I was in the car when tomorrow in the one incident I recall her having been on the phone when I was with her uh, speaking with her cousin Marsha, I heard Marsha say they would drive anyone to drink. And that, in, in connection with what the judge said, is very important. Would not a, a mother lie in order to get her child back, a judge asks. And Marsha, on the other side, says the DHHS would drive anyone to drink, the way that they're harrying you and burdening and badgering you stymieing you, ridiculing you, 
browbeating you into obedience, humiliating you. For example, Tamara Clark, when she visited her child, making special trip to get down to Denver Scudder from Camden, a considerable drive, was having no wheels, left to stay at a public park, which was fine with her, but she was required to carry the baby seat with her while she carried her son, while she carried the bag of tricks or toys to amuse the child. That's the kind of humiliation, that, uh, the unspeakable degradation that is evident throughout the DHHS interaction with, with, with Tamara. It was all she could do to manage to carry these different things across the street, probably, and across, certainly, you know, some distance from the park to wherever she had to go to report back for duty. Or however it worked, she had to move, obviously, at points and make herself a spectacle. She did not need the car seat she was let off from the DHHS into the park in Damariscada to see the child. But that is the kind of humiliation that took place. So what is it that I saw this morning that I, I come back to? It is that justice requires that you look closely at the entire picture and not get distracted by those things that could end up becoming the picture for political judges, for a political DHHS, for a political permanency worker like Deborah Paradis, who clearly was browbeating and lying to Mara Clark, intimidating her because she had gone to a different drug counselor and Deborah Paradis afraid that the new drug and alcohol counselor because tomorrow was affected by alcohol not drugs according to what she told me might actually help her to overcome the addiction and that was not in the interest of Deborah Paradis who was trying to frame her as being a drinker and therefore an incompetent mother so this video on YouTube, with about 180 hits or so since I last looked at it, uh, at the time of my last viewing of it, apparently caused some stir at the time. That the question ultimately was whether the child would be delivered permanently over to the adoption intendees, which it did under the simple stroke of a pen of a of then Attorney General Janet Mills, who's now the governor, who obviously completely dismissed the material submitted for the court, if she even looked at it. The material that I had submitted regarding interviews I had with her, cut the copies of which I was willing to make available for Larry Fryer, her attorney. And when we came to the house to offer him a stack of papers to be copied so he could get his copies, he said he didn't have a functioning printer in his house. 
And this is, mind you, a castle-sized house in Rockland. Certainly not embellished by all the fineries of uh, a manicured lawn and, and uh, well-kept, properly maintained building and environs, but nevertheless a man of significant means enough to be occupying a good part of a city block in Rockland, Maine. And he says he doesn't have a functioning printer. He's, a he's an attorney at law. And so we didn't leave him a stack, the stack of papers that, that whatever it was, a half inch to an inch or inch and a half, two inches of papers that we had filed with the court in Rockland, Maine. Obviously, he did not want to touch this true advocacy because he was the attorney for her and had dropped the ball. In fact, his argument when we visited was it's often much better for a child with a mother that has serious disabilities to be placed in a home where he can have the advantages and opportunity of a really solid education. What did that attorney miss? The same thing that the judge missed, the same thing that Janet Mills missed, the same thing that the DHHS permanency worker and investigators missed, the same thing that the legislators who, who ignorantly empowered the DHHS to take children from parents on those in the penumbra area of uncertainty as to whether abuse is implied in the two things that were used with Tamara Clark. One, her presumed, presumed disability, mental disability, and number two, her problem with drinking, neither of which were provable, neither of which were demonstrably a problem. There are mothers who drink. That does not an alcoholic make, nor does it an abuser make, as we certainly know. So what is it getting back to the core problem? The core problem in a judicial setting for the DHHS first, because they are a justice system unto themselves, a law unto themselves, an unruly and rogue system devised both maliciously and ignorantly by legislators who were too lazy to study the Constitution and, and to ensure that it be adhered to in, in its particulars. We look at the DHHS and the judicial system as having powers to take children from parents and, issue, and give them to other parents or, or to adoption parents. And we assume that their word is final because their judgment must be uncannily infallible. We, we make that presumption. We have that naivete in our culture, in our society. We've been taught, we've been schooled, we've been classed in, into the system of believing that because they went to school, they are the authority figures, they must be right. Or we don't care if they're right or wrong, they are the authority figures and therefore it has to be done, period. Or third category is we don't care whether they're right or wrong and we don't care at all. What happens? And those are the three general categories of society. But what we are interested in is what is conscientious justice? What does it mean? What does it look like? To look at the fact that Tamara Clark might have lied regarding her alcohol intake, comma, 
I say comma sometimes, excuse me, that's because I'm used to dictating voice to text on some of my uh, writing through my phone. So I apologize for that. But we are looking at the fact that people can even lie in the process of a judicial arrangement and be caught in that lie and therefore be deprived of, of a child on the basis of having been caught in a lie that I do not drink when we've proven here and here and here that you have drunk. And that's why the judge did a wonderful thing before either that judge or another judge turned on both Tamara Clark and her child in persecution by the state. When that then benevolent judge said, could not a mother lie in order to get her child back? Meaning saying that she would ne she never drinks. Because obviously you people at DHHS are saying that she's drinking and therefore her child should be taken. She's an irresponsible mother, she's a drinker. She had been depicted as a woman out of control and therefore completely uncaring for the child and or too distracted by alcohol to be a considerate, conscientious, effective, committed, competent mother. That's the problem. They had made an assumption that the fact that she had drunk alcohol during the course of time, extended courses of time, when she couldn't see her child is proof that she would drink if her child were home and that she would drink to the injury of that child. Naturally, DHHS was not interested in the fact that was addressed by Tamara Clark's cousin Marsha on the phone that day when I overheard on speaker. The DHHS would drive anyone to drink. That was a classic statement, and it's absolutely true. Of course, it's not absolutely true in the fact that people can choose not to allow someone else to make them do anything. But it's also equally true, and that's why the truism is expressed, that someone could drive anyone to drink. In this case, the DHHS. It's a truism in this sense, that a person who's already overwhelmed, who's lost her child to the state, who has a woman taunting her in the family team meetings, gloating over the fact that she's already had several foster children and is much more capable, therefore, than she is to raise this child, a taunt that cannot be answered by this poor woman who's never had a child before and who is proven to be, in that sense, inferior to this woman and in the most arrogant exploitation of extreme prejudice and persecution by the state, supported by Deborah Paradis, the permanency worker presiding over these social service meetings. Of course she's more experienced, she's already had children before, but that does not a parent make, nor does it in, uh, entitle her to the adoption of a child that belongs to another woman. So again, what we look at is not the occasional drinking of Tamara Clark, or her mental disabilities, whatever they might have been, which is not thoroughly diagnosed because she has something that is a rare kind of limitation or disability, as she has stated to me. The mistake that is made is that 
the state capitalizes on something that proves a character issue of a parent, that they're capable of lying, and that they're capable of drinking, in the case of Tamara Clark, and saying they don't drink, as a, as a means of suggesting that, oh, if they're not willing to admit that they've drunk it, that means they've got a problem. So they make a they they make a presumption based on the determination of Tamara Clark to say she never drinks, that she's hiding something, and also that she's lying, because she's also caught because apparently she had evidence from the police having stopped having having stopped by the restaurant slash bar where she was, and having evidence proven or report brought to the court itself that she had fallen and was drinking, etc. The mistake is that we look at that lie and we suggest that she's evil because she lied. That's the terrible mistake. Instead of looking at the context of a mother deprived of her child, naturally lonely, and when she would get her character, character her, her standard meal that she would get occasionally downtown, the bar was only within 30 feet of where she got her, would sit to have her sandwich, or she needed at the bar, and of course she occasionally did, apparently, have a drink. Worst case scenario. Whether she did or didn't, that's not something I'm, I'm actually clear on, and this is now two years removed from the time I was speaking to her. The point I'm getting at, when it comes to the DHHS dealing with parents and custody, or when it, when it comes to the court systems dealing with any issues between parties of any kind, the relegation of a person to a stereotype as an alcoholic or as someone who's mentally ill in the case of, of Kathy Lowell, and therefore incompetent, and therefore not able to deal with the marital assets, therefore allowing her husband to extort all the marital assets, uh, or and so on and so forth regarding also the, the power of attorney for Kathy Lowell's mother, being taken from her by her siblings, and then angling, of course, next for the conservatorship, and then next for the uh, representation of the will ultimately giving that power to her brother, who then can expropriate that, that position of power to commandeer the estate and allow for extortion that would not have been permitted had Kathy Lowell been in charge of the finances, etc., under the role of not only power of attorney, but the executor, is that the right word? But certainly the person who represents the parents regarding the estate and the will. So we also look at Don Juan Moses' case and the stereotype involved there. What was the stereotype? It was that he, because he was accusing Jessica of cheating, was naturally abusive in the process of accusing her of cheating. The judge painting the same picture that Pine Tree Legal Shannon Karam painted of Moses 
throwing the Jessica against a table, nearly killing or intending to kill the child in the womb. That's the kind of scenario. The breath being so close that she could smell his breath, her hands bent back, punched in the head, then hitting the wall next, biting the side of her mouth as she slips to the floor. It's a masterpiece of deception. And the judge, hook, line, and sinker, takes the story, which was never even presented in the, in, presented in the DHHS records themselves. When Jessica was given a perfect opportunity to say anything she could to frame Don Juan Moses two years before. What makes that fresco so carefully painted as if on the Sistine Chapel ceiling by Michelangelo? on the part of the defense attorney and the judge Cashman in this matter? What is it that causes them to believe that Don Juan Moses is abusive? That hackneyed cliche that if a man accuses a woman of cheating, he's going to be abusive also. It's a stereotype, it's a sexist stereotype that needs to be removed, and it must be challenged in the court system. A person can indeed accuse another person of being unfaithful and cheating, and or question such a party regarding whether they are, are cheating. Such parties as to whether they are cheating. And they can do so without being in any way rude, overbearing, abusive, obnoxious, violent. In fact, the accusation of cheating that is provable can lead to outrage not on the party only, not on the part only of the accuser, but on the part of the, the person ex exposed. Did this ever occur to the permanency worker Taylor Cipriano? Why, of course, it would have occurred to all of these ladies if they had any knowledge of basic human life experience. However, the biased opinion position requires that they not look at the obvious, which is that if a person's exposed for cheating or is alleged to be cheating who actually is cheating, and the evidence is gathered to prove that the person is cheating, and finally the evidence is conclusive, that person can be nonchalant about it, or this, that person can explode to the point of physical, physically attacking the other party. Did the DHHS take this into cognizance? Why, of course, they, they, they might have thought of, about this. But their, their agenda was already established. They had premeditated the, the, the removal of that child from one home and the placement of it in another. They cannot be wrong. They cannot change their mind. Not only because of pride of opinion, but because of policy and economics. They cannot afford to admit that they were wrong and have to confess that they had wasted not only months of time, but redirected people into other activity that, that they should never have entered into in the first place of a false accusation of abuse. And it prevented them from doing the casework that they should have done with, with regard to legitimate cases out there of actual abuse. And then, when Don Juan Moses was cleared of, of, of allegations of abuse because he threatened a lawsuit for defamation and bias, 
Within months, he discovers that his children are now being abused by the boyfriend that Jessica was cheating with a year and a half before. A year to a year and a half, well, a year and a half before. At which point, the DHHS now cannot admit that it was wrong in another case, in another aspect, and that is that Jessica, whose aunt had already said was abusive, was now allowing this boyfriend to abuse the children and denying that the abuse was taking place. And so they had to conduct a half-hearted interview, a lukewarm interview, and pass it over to Kids Peace, which is a contracting agency dealing with the HHS on moderate, low to moderate cases of concern for child abuse. Don Juan Moses, mind you, had a video of a boy arch arcing his hand, showing a punching movement demonstrating it even as Judge Cashman herself admits in her judgment that it's a very clear punch to the groin. And, of course, the original investigator never saw that video. The supervisor of that original investigator who refused to follow up on the second form of abuse begrudgingly shows up at the house of Cheryl White at Jonathan's suggestion so that she can hear that Cheryl White's accusation that Jessica was abusing her son was never taken seriously and was sabotaged by badgering and browbeating DHHS agents su suggesting that she was writing this letter in behalf of Don Juan Moses just to protect him as if she were lying to do so. And in that meeting, Monica Williams, the supervisor for the unknown caseworker, looks at the video and she says, okay, is that all? Is there another one? And she did that kind of thing. Instead of noticing what even Judge Cashman said, which was that this child said he was punched in the groin. And so the DHHS clearly was taking a position to impugn Don Juan Moses and to protect Jessica Pinkerton at all costs from scrutiny because they have already determined to give custody of the child to Jessica Pinkerton. So getting back to the question of justice, justice is when you look at everything, warts and all, in terms of both parties in a case, but that you look at them in the context and within the circumstance of the overarching issues, the major problems, so that instead of catching somebody in a white lie, which might be to defend the, the, the interest of keeping the child in the case of Tamara Clark. You look at the overarching question whether she's fit to be a parent. Would she indeed be tempted to drink if she has her beloved child with her? Of course not. She was going to AA meeting consistently for considerable periods of time if, he, if she's not still doing it. I know this because I was personally helping her to get rides either back or forth from that, those meetings sometimes. Or called when she was on her way, or et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing. When you look at the irregularities in the life of Kathy Lowell and Jonathan Tucker and Don Juan Moses in the same way, whether in court or whether, or whether in family court where people within families fight over things, you can, you can catch a detail that can frame a person by taking all the unsavory or irregular aspects of their character and piling those on 
in order to build a case so that the real deeper issues are not addressed of the justice of Jonathan seeing his mother, Kathy seeing her mother, Kathy having her real estate, Kathy being able to represent the parents as a representative of the will as well as the uh, power of attorney and even the medical uh, um, um, health proxy for her parents before the sister sabotaged in that respect. The tendencies for Jonathan and Kathy Lowell and Tamara Clark and Damon Moses to make mistakes in our lives does not exculpate the system from having extorted material property, from having extorted children, from having persecuted all of these parties, from having denied Jonathan from seeing his mother, even though in my case there was simply a threat of a restraining order put out by Elias under the auspices, no doubt, of Richard, my brother, his father. That was never issued because mother put her foot down with stepbrother John when I was at the Knox Center visiting her when she had a fall and by providence had that fall in order for, for me to be able to see her since she was held hostage in the house where Elias, my brother Richard's son, lives. And the threat of a restraining order hung over me there. So at the Knox Center, I was allowed to see her and did. And when John Andrews threateningly, menacingly shook my hand with his hand, when I shook his hand, he, he had begrudgingly taken my hand only because he was in the presence of my mother. He would not even give me the time of day. Had I met him at a shopping mall, as, as has happened at the Walmart in Rockland and in other places, he has rebuffed and defied and despised me, even saying, I really, I want to know, I really want to know what, what you actually did to my father, which is, gets back to a whole other story another time. But the point is, my mother said, I let him know that I want him to bury the hatchet. What was that hatchet? It was to keep, stop keeping Jonathan at bay from his mother, among other things, and stop stereotyping him as some religious crazy person who's overbearing with his mother and other people in the family. And recognize that the family is family and is inviolate. And my mother told John Andrews that she did not want a restraining order threat hanging over the relationship between her and her son, Jonathan. And so the following morning, after I had confronted John Andrews by remaining until the time he had arrived in the evening, I'd stood and put my hand out to him, to his terrible chagrin, his mortification. And I had a chance to tell him that his father and I reconciled and that it would be his wish for us to reconcile. Unanswerable charges by the power of the Holy Spirit, conviction to the point of complete silence and just a redirection on the part of John Andrews to ask my mother the perfunctory questions, how, what happened today? How are you feeling today and all that? And the following morning when I saw my mother, I said, how did it go? Were you okay with me representing you the way I did and representing the family? And Alfred, his father, my stepbrother's father, she said yes. She was very happy with how I conducted myself. In fact, she was quietly, very much ecstatically proud of me. 
and would have probably have said what she had said in 2003 or four when my stepfather died and I'd spoken, stood and spoken at the St. Thomas Church side room, the fellowship hall, and at the, at the treasurer's surprise, uh, or, or speaker's surprise, who at that time, I believe one of the speakers still was Robert Furman, the doctor on Chestnut Street, who knew my family going back the Tuckers as well as my mother before she married Al Andrews, who became the treasurer himself, I said that my stepfather and I reconciled and that I'm very sorry that I had caused pain to him and to others and that uh, we had the wonderful privilege of reconnecting. And my mother kissed my hand the way that Al kissed my hand at Maine Medical Center within six months before that. after I sat down and after she had stated, that was eloquent of you. You were eloquent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. She couldn't be quite so effusive, especially under her medicalized conditions at the Knox Center many years later, having been under the freighted effects of double Vicodin, double Cinemet for a considerable period of time and gradually coming off of that after my confrontation of it in vain for a period, but ultimately truth prevailed in the hearts of begrudgingly conscientious family members who, whose pride of opinion just dissipated in the interest of advocating for my mother, however tepidly. But at the Knox Center the following day, which was sometime six months ago or so, my mother very clearly told me that I let John know that I don't want that hanging over us. And I didn't ask her what it is, but she meant a restraining order a restraining order threat. So when we paint the picture of somebody as horrible and toxic or dangerous or irresponsible or incompetent, whether it's Kathy Lowell, whether it's Tamara Clark, whether it's Don Juan Moses or Jonathan Tucker, we fail to do justice. Justice is to discover what the issue is first and to get to the core of that. In the case of Don Juan Moses, is he physically violent toward Jessica? And in the altercations with Jessica regarding her cheating, was that necessarily a threat to the safety of the children? That is the crucial question. Not the question of whether he might have inadvertently hurt her when she was attacking him by shutting the bathroom door and causing what she stated was an injury so bad that she lost her hearing. Whether she lost her hearing or not is anyone's guess. It's a classic, wonderful way to allow the child to be taken from Don Juan Moses, particularly since the DHHS is perfectly free to commit perjury by stating that he took a flat hand to the ear, which would cause deaf a deafness were the strike to be appropriately done. But a bathroom door to the ear, striking it exactly flat, because she's trying to push her way into the bathroom to follow him, does not cause deafness. That has to be a lie. And so, of course, that is why they had the perjury of two different forms of injury to the ear in the DHHS documentation. But enough on that. I didn't plan to expatiate and to carry on so far afield from the basic concern that I was sharing. But it, nevertheless, all of this hangs together very well. 
And we come back to the core problem, which is tell the truth, get to the core problem within the trial, within the conflict. Don't get caught up in the details in order to allow for a biased opinion judgment. Do not manipulate the details to create a scenario, a narrative for a biased opinion judgment.